0: Okay, well, it's been a couple weeks um, since we've been here at Awaken. I hope you guys had a good week last week. Um, I had a pretty exciting weekend uh, myself. Um, six years ago, I scheduled an appointment to get my wisdom teeth out, and I didn't show up. Um, so I rescheduled it for this past weekend. Um, so I decided I would show you guys a little bit of the aftermath of that. Um, so I think we have a video. I don't know if you guys can cue that up. And he's kind of about to fall asleep. He's very. His high, He has his eyes closed while he's talking to you in the car. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> Are you awake, Chris? Chris. Oh, I think he fell asleep. Wait, no. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So. So. You, okay. Do you wanna? Do you wanna talk more to start? What? <laughs> Maybe later? Awesome. Thank you for that. So honestly, that has nothing to do with my sermon or what I'm going to talk about tonight at all, but apparently my main concerns were cake, ice cream, and writing my sermon when I got out of surgery. So lucky for you, I did not write my sermon while I was in that state of mind still although that probably would have been a little bit more entertaining and fun. Um, But it probably would have had more to do with cake and ice cream than anything relative to tonight. Um, But tonight, we are actually starting a brand new series. So we just got out of a six-part series on the Holy Spirit, and tonight we're starting a three-part series on holiness. We're specifically calling this series Holy Exiles. We've got a fancy new graphic for you for that too. Yeah, thank you, communications team. That looks so good. Now, that name for the series, Holy Exiles, will make a lot more sense in the final week um, when Stosh preaches out of Daniel, one of the greatest examples of a holy exile we see in all of history. It also was just a much better and less youth groupy name than something like Be in the World and Not of It or something like that. But for the sake of tonight, all you need to know is that we're going to keep it simple and we're going to talk about holiness. What holiness means how we become holy, how we remain holy, and why it's important. And before we break down holiness and define what it means, I'm well aware that there are a lot of different feelings that come up when we hear that word. First off, I get that there's a temptation as soon as a preacher mentions holiness to just tune them out altogether, right? and fear that things are about to get legalistic, condemning, or that I'm about to tell you all that you need to work harder, be better, or measure up to some standard that I'm about to set for you. And that's valid and fair to be feeling that right now. There are a lot of hypocritical preachers out there, right? That they use like fear-mongering as different tactics to get like a big response time. Like it's a pretty common thing. They describe Jesus as this tyrannical ruler who just can't handle how disgusting your sin was anymore, so he decided to just deal with it himself. And now, the only way to stay holy and blameless before him um, is to remind you of how awful you are and to make all these rules to live by so you can just manage your sin better. And then, we also live caught in between the opposite extreme, the extreme of our culture, the temptation to align ourselves with the ideologies of the secular, Postmodern, post-Christian culture that influences our social media feeds, our favorite TV shows, YouTubers, sometimes even our professors, and even that one politically obsessed cousin or uncle that we all seem to have. But the problem with aligning ourselves with their way of thinking isn't that they're intentionally trying to poison your mind and lead you into a dark web of lives that you'll never be able to return from. No more so, the problem is that their way of thinking has no real truth to it at all. And they don't even intend to get there in the first place, but that's what happens when the backbone to your way of thinking, your way of life, is to live your own truth. Or when the way that you morally live your life is relative to whatever you feel like doing in the moment, as long as it isn't hurting anyone else. But the even bigger problem is that it's usually incongruent or completely opposite from the teachings of Jesus. So as we begin to talk about holiness, we have to acknowledge that we may be coming from different paradigms tonight. We might be having different perspectives or presuppositions um, caught between these two extremes in general. And paradigms are perspectives, they really matter. So my parents have this cabin um, in northern New Mexico um, it's about an hour and a half away from our house, and every summer, as kids, we used to go there. Um, we'd go there to like ride on ATVs, to kayak, rock climb, all the fun, outdoorsy stuff that you get to do in New Mexico in the summer. And they were really proud of this cabin, and so was my Italian grandmother. Um, she is not from Italy herself. She's from um, America, um, but she has cousins who are from Italy that she decided to um, take to our cabin one summer. And so she's really excited to show off this cabin to them, super excited to show it to them, and on the way there, as she's describing it to them, or as she's saying, hey, I'm going to bring you to the cabin, their face is less excited and more concerned. Um, their face is showing a lot of apprehension, and to be honest with you, my parents' cabin is pretty amazing, so my was really um, talking it up, um, And the reason we found out why later when why they were so concerned and apprehensive about the cabin was the word she was using in Italian for cabin didn't actually uh, mean cabin. It more so described like a brothel or a prostitution house. So you can imagine her cousin's relief when they show up to our cabin and see my parents and their little blonde children running around instead of driving an hour and a half into the woods to a brothel and that my grandma seemed to be so proud of. But the point is that their paradigm up to this whole point, to this cabin, was very far from reality of what my grandma was actually trying to communicate. And I think that we can do this a lot when it comes to talking about holiness. Our paradigms can be shaped by bad theology, our culture, fear, or even past experiences that are far from what is actually true in reality. So tonight, that's the adventure we're going to go on. We're going to hopefully help formulate a healthy and true view of what holiness means by looking at different stories and passages of scripture. Again, we'll talk about what holiness is, how we become holy, how we remain holy, and why it's so crucial and important. So to start, you can turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Again, that's Isaiah 6. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time here in this um, chapter, but the book of Isaiah follows the life of the prophet Isaiah. He was a seer prophet, meaning he saw a lot of different visions and spoke on behalf of God. He prophesied about God's judgment, but also about how God would vindicate and reconcile his people back to himself, which was through the Messiah to come. So the first five chapters of Isaiah are about God's vision for his chosen people. And we pick up here in chapter 6, where Isaiah is chosen and called by God for his purposes. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim. Each had six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah had this profound and life-changing vision where he sees the Lord on his throne, and not just on the throne, but that his throne was high and exalted. An important distinction showing that the Lord's authority and his, his like superiority over all of creation and then Isaiah says that the seraphim, or angels, surrounding him had six wings, two of which they needed just to cover their faces because of the Lord's divine glory was too much for even them to look upon, right? For even angels to look upon, it was too much for them. And they were calling to one another, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory, So the repetition of the word holy here is the only way that the Lord can be described. To say it once or twice would be profound, but it would still be inaccurate. If you really wanted to get the point across in Jewish culture, you would say it three times in order to say that God is as holy as it gets. There's no other degree of holiness that compares to the Lord. But what does that even mean? What does it mean that the Lord is holy? Well, simply put, it means that he is set apart set apart from creation. He's divine and not created. He's the creator of all creation. So that means that he could get rid of creation and still be. He would still exist. So he's on a completely different level and playing field entirely. And this holiness of his is not just one single part of God or aspect of him, but it describes all of who he is. Or as Sam Storms puts it, the holiness of God only secondarily refers to his moral purity, his righteousness of character. It primarily points to his infinite otherness. To say that God is holy is to say that he is transcendently separate. Holiness is not one attribute among many. It's not like grace or power or knowledge or wrath. Everything about God is holy. Each attribute partakes of divine holiness. So it means everything about him is holy. Holy. His love is holy, his strength, his compassion, his mercy, his ways, everything about him is holy and set apart in a divine way that we as humans cannot live up to or try to manufacture ourselves. So pick up with me in verse 4. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. So Isaiah's reaction here is more than just simply oppressed and exceeds just being simply excited. He's ruined by the holiness of God, so much so that it gives him this recognition of his own brokenness and his own depravity. And it's Isaiah that we're talking about. Right? It's the prophet. It's not some punk criminal or a murderer. He was a chosen prophet of the Lord that lived a very righteous life. But as he sees the Lord in his glory, he not only recognizes God's holiness and otherness, but he also recognizes his deep state of brokenness and uncleanness to the point where he admits that his lips aren't even clean enough to praise the Lord for his holiness like the seraphim did. And not only that, but he lived among a people. Who had unclean lips, sinners who are hopeless and unworthy of the Lord. And so this moment was probably terrifying and probably felt horrible. It was the best place for Isaiah to be. The place where he recognized that his outward appearance wasn't enough at all. There was no righteousness in and of himself that could make him clean or holy. But this was the place where God wanted him, the place where God could actually use him. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. So Isaiah saw the holiness of the Lord recognized and admitted his own brokenness, admitted that his outward appearance or moralistic life wasn't enough to be made clean. He admitted his need, and God met him in it. He took his guilt away and atoned his sin. And then God set Isaiah apart from a rebellious, unrighteous people for the purposes of God, almost like a holy exile. But what about for us? What about when we come to the end of ourselves and recognize that we are nothing apart from him, that we'll never measure up? When we actually recognize our sin and take responsibility of it, does God have a flying angel come and put a coal on our mouth to atone for our sin every time? Not exactly, but for us, it's even better. His way of cleansing us, his way of making us holy and righteous before him is the cross. God is holy And as 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16 tells us, just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So not only is God holy, but he calls us to be holy as well. And that holiness God requires of us is not something that can be manufactured or earned, right? But just like our salvation, it's something that's freely given to us by God. And before we go any further, It's important to note that God's desire for us to be holy doesn't come from a place of moral superiority and looking down on us like, oh, those disgusting humans, I just can't even handle their moral filth and sin. No, it comes from a place of love. A love that runs after us while we were still a long way off with a ring and a robe. A love that leaves the 99 righteous sheep to find the one lost sheep. Or as John 3.16 says it, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God's desire for us to be holy like he is holy is an outrageously loving desire. So much so that he would give his one and only son, who was the only one that was actually holy, to be the atonement for our sins. The gospel didn't start with our sin. It started with God's love for us. And out of that love, he dealt with our sin so that there could actually be a way where we who weren't holy could be made holy so that we could be reconciled to him. So 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that he actually became our sin on the cross so that in him, we might become his righteousness. In Jesus, we would become his righteousness. Or as 1 Corinthians one thirty puts it, It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, because of God that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. So any paradigm or presupposition of holiness that has left a bad taste in our mouths and created an unhealthy view of Jesus or the Father, it needs to fall away. We have to be done with that way of thinking. Because it's a misrepresentation of the Father that could lead you down a dark path. And the belief that we also need to be done with tonight is that there's anything that we can do in and of ourselves to make ourselves holy. We can't manufacture our own holiness. So prior to John 3.16 that we just read earlier, in this whole chapter of John 3, that's one of the points that Jesus is trying to make real to this man named Nicodemus. So Nicodemus was a Pharisee, And he was the leader of the Jews, a man who lived an extremely outwardly righteous and religious life. But, like we saw with Isaiah, it wasn't religious deeds or an upholding of the law that God was truly after. He was after inward transformation. So he explains this to Nicodemus by telling him over and over that he must be born again. The flesh can only give birth to flesh. There's nothing in of us that can make us holy or give us eternal life. But the Spirit gives birth to the spirit. Us being born again comes from God. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. But Nicodemus doesn't understand this because he's so caught up in the fact that he was already made whole by making himself whole through these religious deeds. But then radical Jewish mystic Rabbi Jesus hits him with this. Verse eight, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, You cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So we aren't the ones who control the work of the Spirit and how we are born again into a new, holy, and set-apart creation. Just like we might notice or feel the effects of the wind without fully knowing where it comes from or where it's going, so it is with our new birth. So it is with being new creations. New creations who are set apart for God's purposes, new creations who are holy and children of God. So, following a set of rules or logically reasoning ourselves into holiness won't actually get us anywhere. We live from a place of victory, Jesus' victory on the cross. We don't work towards it. We live from a place of being made holy, not trying to earn holiness. So, we become holy by the power of the cross. Right By placing our faith in Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, and ascension. But how do we remain holy? Well, we remain holy by denying ourselves and taking up our own cross. And that's where this reality gets really challenging. That's where the rubber actually meets the road. Our righteousness, our position before God is given to us as a free gift of love. A gift that was extremely costly to the Lord a gift where he showed that your life was worth Jesus being wrongfully murdered and tortured on a cross for your sin. But the question is, is he worth the rest of yours? Luke 9, verse 23 through 24 says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So we live in an American individualistic self-fulfilling society where you live your life based on whatever you feel is good or will make you happy, satisfied, or get you ahead of everyone else. A life where you are in control, where you're your own God, where you're your own Lord, and as long as it isn't hurting anyone else, your decisions only affect you. And that life might be promising at first or feel good in the moment, but eventually you'll reap what you sow. And that life could not be more opposite of the kingdom of God and the way of Jesus. A life where we deny ourselves and lose this world but get Jesus and his kingdom instead. A life where we forgive when we're offended, even if we're right a life where we deny our passion and we wait for marriage, a life where Jesus dictates our gender and not us, where Jesus dictates our sexuality and not us, where we're filled with the Holy Spirit and not drunk, even if it's legal or just a couple times a year, a life where he says you're beautiful and made in the image of God, and it doesn't matter how else anybody else defines beauty. A life where we love our enemies and keep a short leash on our temper, even if Arizona drivers are maniacs and feel the need to cut you off every five minutes. That one's for me. A life where we do our schoolwork and our jobs with excellence, a life that's filled with a thousand small yeses to righteousness when no one else is looking, and a thousand noes to sin and denials of our flesh. A life that's fully given to Jesus and not just partly given to him. A life lived with love, but not the love that our generation defines as relative, self-serving, and whatever makes you feel good, but the love that Jesus defines as radically sacrificial, that is kind and patient, but also doesn't rejoice in wrongdoing. So that's a very short list of what it looks like to take up our cross, deny our flesh, and live a holy life. And it's honestly quite different than the lives being lived by everyone else around us. But that's what we're called to do. We are called to be children of God, citizens of heaven who are made holy and called to live holy lives worthy of our king, set apart for his purposes. 1 Peter 2, 9 through 11 says it this way. But you are a chosen people So does that mean that living a perfect life, does that mean that we actually have to be perfect every time and get it right and that we can never fall down? No, but it means that we remain dependent on Jesus who has made us and called us to be holy and submit to his leadership in our lives. It's not about being perfect, but about being dependent. That means when we do fall, When we sin, we walk outside of our new creation nature, we come back to Jesus in repentance. So repentance, where we come back to the cross for forgiveness and walk away picking up our own cross in denial of our flesh. And knowing that throughout the process of picking up our cross daily, that we're not alone, but we have the Holy Spirit who's co-laboring with us in it. So one of my really good friends um, is from Minnesota, and so he's really good at fly fishing, and he loves to take me um, fly fishing. And now the problem is that I'm not very good at fly fishing at all, but he's incredibly patient with me in this process. So he'll like set my rod up, he'll tie the the fly on the line for me, he'll um, get it unsnagged whenever I get it snagged, Um, whatever I need help with, he'll help me with. So one time, I actually got it snagged in a tree, and he, like, gets it out for me, and he's like, here, let me just help you a little bit. Let me help you um, a little bit more than I'm already helping you. And so he casts my line in with me, and it would have it that he catches a fish, like, right away. He gets one on the line, and so he's like, here, you reel it in. You reel it in. So I decide that Okay, I guess I'll reel it in. So I'm reeling it in, and afterwards, he's like, you caught a fish, you caught a fish. I'm like, yeah, I guess I caught a fish, or you did what my parents did when I was five, and they tried to take me fishing. But often, that's what collaborating with God looks like. It might not be as easy as just reeling in a fish, but he definitely does most of the hard work for us. His grace is sufficient, and his power is made perfect in our weakness. It might still be really difficult for us, and we might feel really weak, but just know that without his help, it would be impossible. On the other hand, we can't overcorrect and naively say that God does all the work. So I love how Augustine said it. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. I'll say it one more time. Without God, we cannot. Without us, God will not. So performance or dead works won't get us anywhere in our relationship with God. But neither does passivity and laziness. There's an effort that has to be made, an effort to deny our flesh but walk by the Spirit. We're going to look at this in Galatians chapter 5, and you can turn there with me. So I know we're reading a lot of Scripture tonight, and it's a lot of like theological content But we really want scripture to shape your paradigm of holiness and not just another sermon or another preacher. So Galatians 5, starting in verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He really didn't leave anything out here. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And I love how he sums it up in these last two verses. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So as people of God who have crucified our flesh with its passions and desires, there's a dance that we have to do. A dance where we recognize we've been made holy by God, we're dead to our old way of life, our flesh has been crucified with Christ, but now we have to live that out by actually keeping in step with the Spirit. By obeying whatever He tells us will give us life and produce fruit, and not just by doing whatever feels good or right to us in the moment. Our sin might not affect our identity or our position before God. Like if you accept Jesus as Lord and you commit your life to him, your son or a daughter who will get to spend eternal life with him, even if your life looks really messy, that won't change your position before him as one who's saved, but our sin can affect our intimacy with him, especially unconfessed sin and habitual sin. It can create bondage to something other than God. It can feel really heavy, like you're in chains or you're suffocating or a slave to it. It can create what might feel like there's a wall between you and the Lord. Um, So the best way for me to describe it would actually be like in marriage. If I were to be a jerk to Stosh and do something that would betray her, but act like what I did didn't actually hurt her, or I never apologized for it, or kind of apologized for it, but just keep doing it over and over again, then we'd still be married, right? I'd still be her husband. She'd probably love me because she's amazing like that. But what would happen is that there'd be serious problems in our marriage, and it would feel like there's a wall between us. But if I were to actually take ownership of how I've wronged her and show genuine willingness and effort to change, then that would actually be a really healthy marriage because that's how relationships work, and that's how our relationship with God works. When we get married, we don't get married with the expectation that our spouse is going to be perfect, but we commit to faithfully love each other and grow in Christ-likeness. We're imperfect people. And this is where the analogy breaks down because even better, in our relationship with God, God knew what he was getting himself into by reconciling messy people. But the beautiful difference is, the fortunate difference for us is that God is perfect. And he's faithful even when we're faithless. He knows we're not gonna be perfect. We're gonna fall down and make mistakes. But the key here is that we bear fruit in keeping with repentance. We get back up, we stay in the game, and we keep moving forward. We don't take ourselves out of the game. That can be really hard to do, especially when it feels like everyone else around us, including some Christians, don't actually live that way, right? But it's extremely worth it, and it really, really matters. It's worth it because Jesus is worthy. It's worth it because the decisions you make to walk in holiness don't just affect you, but they affect everyone else around you. It's worth it because the Bible says that we are to work at living a holy life because those who are not holy will not see the Lord. It's worth it because the cross wasn't just a ticket to heaven where the rest of this life is arbitrary and you can do whatever you want. It's worth it because one day we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have to give an account for our lives where we'll also be rewarded for how we walked in holiness and pleased God. And finally, It's worth it because he's coming back and we better be ready when he does. So you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25, we're gonna start in verse one. Give you guys a bit to turn there. It's a longer passage of scripture. All right, starting in verse one. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. Because you do not know the day or the hour. This isn't some ancient Near East parable that we can pick and choose from to believe whatever we want to about it. This is the reality that we live in as believers. Some will be ready for his return, and others won't. Some will be wise by living holy lives, preparing for his return, while others will waste it and reap the consequences. But what about for you? Will preparing for his return, walking a life of holiness, just be a cool thing that you did in high school or college, or will you make it for the long haul? What about when you go through trials and temptations that will make you want to give up and just live your life the way that you want to? What about when your list of friends who are radically following Jesus starts to grow smaller and smaller and smaller? When the life he asks you to live looks radically different than everyone else around you? Will you answer the call to be fully set apart for him? Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 35, and we're going to end here. So Isaiah 35, in this chapter, um, the book of Isaiah takes a dramatic turn from God's judgment of other nations to the redemption of his people. It's one of the most beautiful poems in all of scripture, and it truly captures God's heart to redeem and restore us to his original intent. Um, Some translations call it the joy of the redeemed. So we can pick up here in verse 5. Then will the eyes of the blind be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. So God shows up in the most unlikely, barren, and hopeless of places. He opens blind eyes and deaf ears. He turns deserts into streams. He rescues his children and gives them a better way to walk in, a highway of holiness. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there. And those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them and sorrow and sighing will flee away. I don't know about you, but that's where I wanna be. I wanna be on the highway of holiness. I wanna be on the road that is above every other road. I want to be on the highway that rises above every mountain of my sin that I can never pay for or get rid of myself, the road that leads to joy and resurrection life, and not the road that the rest of my generation is following that leads to death and an eternity in a lake of fire. I want to be on the way that is holy and set apart for the redeemed where I'm protected from the torture of the evil one, where joy and gladness will overtake us and sorrow will flee the way that leads to Zion, the way, the truth, and the life that is only found in Jesus. That's what holiness is all about. It's not about sin management and trying to clean yourself up and be better. It's for Jesus, by Jesus, because of Jesus, and into eternal life with Jesus and he'll chase you down, and he'll woo you into it the rest of your life, but ultimately you do have a choice to make. Will you choose yourself? Will you choose this world, a life of fleeting pleasure, or will you choose him and live in the joy of the redeemed? Will you stand with me as I pray for us? Jesus, we thank you that you made a way for us. We thank you for the cross. God, we thank you that you who knew no sin became our sin on the cross, God, so that we might become your righteousness in you, God. I thank you that there's nothing holding us back from you, God, but that you truly did make a way, God, and that you call us a holy people, Lord, and that there's a call tonight, God, that you're calling us to deny our flesh, to take up our cross and to follow you, Lord, to be a holy people, to be a people that are holy and set apart, that are consecrated for your purposes, God. Would we answer that call tonight, Lord? Would we give you not just part of our lives, but would we give you all of them, Lord? Would no stone be unturned tonight, God, but would you have your way in us? So, there's a couple ways that we can respond tonight. But first of all, if you don't actually know Jesus, you haven't given your life fully to him, and we want to make that available tonight. That's something that you can do personally in your own heart, or you can talk to one of us after. But just know that he made a way for you, that he lived a perfect life the only one who was actually holy, the only one that was actually set apart, lived a perfect life, died our death for us, and was raised to newness of life so that if we just place our faith in him, that all of our sin would be atoned for and that we could have eternal life with him. And if there's any area of compromise in your life that you felt the Holy Spirit was convicting you of tonight, I just want to ask you, I just want you to consider don't leave this place without dealing with that tonight. His kindness leads us to repentance. He's a compassionate, loving, and slow to anger. Slow to anger. And he doesn't want you to live your life in a way that's going to destroy it. To live your life in a way that's going to keep hurting you and those around you. He's not shaming you in that or rubbing your nose in that. But he just knows that there's a better way. And he wants to co-labor with you in that to take up your cross and to walk away changed from it. And then for some of us, there's a place of letting go, of manufacturing our own holiness, of knowing that there's nothing in of ourselves that we can do to be holy ourselves, but to accept that free gift that Jesus gave us, to accept his help, to come to him in need tonight. But I think for all of us, that there's a place of resolve tonight where we say that we want to be in the joy of the redeemed, that we want to be on the highway of holiness, that we want to be a holy and consecrated people that will please God. So the front's open for you to be able to respond tonight if you want to on your own. We're also going to have our ministry team up here to pray for you in whatever way that you need to. Just don't leave this place without responding to God.